Welcome back. I am here again with Dr. David Morehouse. Today, alas, we're not going to be talking about remote viewing. We're going to be talking about something that is extremely interesting in and of its own right. And that is the practice of strategic deception. So we're going to get a little bit deep in the intel world today, but I promise you it is it is fascinating stuff. David, welcome. Hi, Sean. Hey, thanks. Thanks, brother. Thanks for having All me right. again. Yeah, always. So, and by the way, I keep getting requests, so people are going to be happy to see you again. I'm be very happy. So what is strategic deception? Yeah, I guess first I should say that I've actually never told this story before. And I, I mean, I've told it to people just maybe sitting around a dinner table or something, you know, to the right audience, because once upon a time when I came out of the army and I was, you know, I put this down as I wanted to tell the story and I had an agent and I had a, a business manager at the time and they were like, nah, man. You know, you're not going to tell this story because if you tell this story, there are people that could come after us and we have families kind of thing. And at the time I thought, well, that's ridiculous. But then I let it sink in for a while. And then I thought, well, maybe it actually it's not ridiculous. I mean, yeah, you're right. It's probably too early, you know, probably not the right time to tell this story. But that was some 25, almost 30 years ago telling that story at that point. So, yeah, that would have been a wrong time. The names and the players have all changed. So talking about this now is really just more intrigue, I think, for your viewers and listeners than it is actually something that anybody is going to go to the bank with and get their underwear and a bunch about it at this point, particularly some of the bad guys. But it's an interesting story to tell. And to be clear, many of the bad guys are probably dead. Yeah, because of they are. Yeah, they're they're dead now. And and in part because of this, right? So I was coming out of the remote viewing unit and I was supposed to go to Milperson. My secondary specialty, as I said, was 41. So I was going to go be a personal manager there, get re-greened before I went to command and general staff college. And re-greening, as you know, means just getting back into army dialogue and speak because after you've been for almost five years working with the agency and the DIA and Royal Cape, et cetera, wasn't places where you were in uniform and, and you weren't playing army, shall we say, or living within the army. It was a different world. So I'd come out of these two very unusual special access programs and on my way. And I thought, you know, I knew where I was going. And I get a phone call that says, hey, your name was given to us and we think that you're a fit for a position that we have within the, uh, another special access program. We'd like to talk to you about it. So we're set up for this meeting to occur. And I go and I sit down with this guy who clearly shows me his badge and creds, that he's an intel warrant officer and he's badged and credentialed. He's probably carrying a weapon. And he sits me down and he tells me what it is that they want me to do. This is a point where the war on drugs is just spinning up and a lot of money is being funneled into various agencies, building them up to stop the flow of various narcotics, whether it's cannabis or it's cocaine. Those were the two biggies at the time. 
heroin was still there, but it wasn't anywhere like it is now. But they they just wanted to target cocaine. And why they wanted to target cocaine was just because of the sheer volume of it that was coming in. It consumed a great number of people in the 80s. And of course, billions of dollars made by those who were the purveyors of this narcotic. And so someone from the national leadership through Secretary of Defense down through the Pentagon said, hey, we're pushing a lot of military into this. Basically, we're giving license and money to federal and state and local law enforcement to militarize themselves to help support this. And so we want the military to play a role. And one of those roles is strategic deception. Now, I had no idea what strategic deception meant. I, of course, read like everybody else did, all the rest of us, you know, when we were in basic course, advanced course, and we're studying military history. We know that strategic deception has been applied in every battlefield since the start of, you know, human warfare being recorded. We know that it's been there. So I had that kind of idea in my mind that that's what this was. And of course, I understood that they were looking for a special operations officer. And they said that because they wanted someone some tactical experience because they figured that this was going to be a weird thing to get involved in. And they didn't understand exactly how it was going to unfold or shake out or what the deception might be or what the involvement of the organization might be. But they needed someone that thought like a special operator to come in and think about this because it was going to be a far forward in the field kind of a thing to get done, they thought. So I then accept the position and I enter into this organization that at the time was codenamed Torn Image. Now, Torn Image was nothing but a strategic deception unit. It was a bunch of warrant officers. It was a bunch of civilians. There was a full colonel in charge, lieutenant colonel, executive officer, and then it just went down. A bunch of majors, other lieutenant colonels, <clears throat> other colonels. Some of them had been there for years because this was, remember, we talked a long time ago about going from regular army into the Department of the Army Special Access roster. And for a Department of the Army Special Access roster, then you go into great skills. So you just keep going down and down deeper and deeper into various kinds of layers of the intel community where you're actually no longer supposed to even be part of the military. Mm -hmm. And so for this particular assignment, it was a great skills assignment. And so great skills goes to Dasser, takes your file, and your file then goes to great skills and it's kept inside some at that time some strange little building at Fort Meade, Maryland, you know, behind. Is great, is great skills a, an acronym for something or what, what does that mean? I, you know, that's a good question. And I really don't know. It was just explained to me that it was like the third level down into hell of becoming someone that works in a top secret special access program. And this was literally a top secret special access program. Even okay, so it's, a, it's like three run, rungs down the rabbit hole, basically. Yeah, yeah, it really is. So you never wear a uniform, obviously, and you turn in your ID card. So you turn in your military ID card and they issue you back a civilian ID card. And they tell you that you're no longer going to be paid through the, the defense payment system. You will now get a check cut from an organization, which in this case, it was called Allied Communications. 
and you'll get a check from that and that check will go to your bank. And so if anybody tries to trace where you're from, they, it's Allied Communications and that's who you now work for. And you need to advise your family and your immediate family that you're now no longer a U.S. Army officer. Well, that, that's a weird thing to do. And telling my father that, who was a career Army officer, my grandfather, career Army. So, so it was a tough thing for him to swallow. And I actually don't think he actually swallowed it. I think he knew that something was up and I was doing something else. And I was trying to be a good spook and not spill the beans on what I was doing. But my father's smart enough to, to know. And so was my wife at the time. But I never admitted it. <laughs> so I showed up for work and then I began this training program where these other deceivers, about roughly 35 people in the organization and maybe 20 of them de deceivers. So 20 of them had actual compartmentalized deception programs. And I'm going to explain what a deception of that scale is. And, and how many did each of them, was each of them responsible for? Just one Some of each them were running multiples. So uh, I know that every day they would rotate like phone watch. So if you had phone watch, you had to go sit in this kind of command console where you see all the cameras looking outside and inside, right? But you had this huge phone bank in front of you. And it was all through a Pentagon switch, right? Or some other switch, which meant a guy goes out into the field in support of the deception that he's running. And whoever he's dealing with, he's handing out a business card. I'm this guy, I'm that guy, I'm that guy, this guy. Here are the phone numbers you call. When that phone number comes back, it's not a traceable phone number. So somebody sitting some other place, a bad guy, can't follow that back to. It doesn't go It's to the Pentagon. It goes into some false switch somewhere, and it bounces then to this organization. But nobody could ever run a trace, a trap on it, and find out where it was, how, the, how it got there. So when the board would light up, it would light up and it would tell you what the business was or what the company was that it was representing. And you had to answer the phone like that. They had a book in front of you, right? So you felt like some dumbass that you had to sit there and go like, insects are us or something like that, right? And whatever the heck it was. And you had to answer Chips, dips, chains, whips. How may I yeah, help you? Yeah. And somebody <laughs> would go, well, I'm looking for Patrick Hazlitt. And you'd be like, oh, and you'd have to look in the book. Patrick Hazlitt, oh, oh, that's Lawn Chambers. Okay. You know, you know, you have to dial on and go, Lawn, there's somebody on the phone for, you know, looking for Patrick Hazlitt, you know. And then that's how this thing went. It was nerve wracking to me because you're like having to think fast and not be a dumb right. shit on the phone to these people, right? And give give everything away. Because that would be unforgiven, I can tell you that. So this was all the kind of stuff you were subjected to while you were going through training. And the other 15 people in the organization were finance people and other stuff that ran things, secretaries and you know leadership and that kind of stuff. So I go through the training, which is pretty light. And once again, not really regimented, well put together. There was no training outline. And of course, they explained that away as it's a top secret limb disc program, limited distribution, which carries much heavier penalties. As you know, top secret limited distribution carries far greater federal penalties than does anything else up backwards in the Intel chain. So you can write a book about remote viewing and get slapped hard and, and maybe court-martialed, but it's not like what it would be if you expose these kinds of things. 
So they make that very clear. And then they tell you this one thing, which, which was very poignant to me. They said, a strategic deception is a lie. It's a lie that must be so well put together that it is sustainable for a minimum of 10 years. And it should be sustainable for longer, but as a minimum, 10 years. Conditions may change where the lie has to change, and then you're going to restructure it. But the initial burst of the lie, the initial telling of the story needs to be so undetectable as to be sustainable for at least 10 years. Wow. I couldn't wrap my head around something like that. I wasn't really certain what that would mean. Then I was read on to what my mission was supposed to be. My mission, paraphrasing only slightly, was that I was to develop a strategic deception in support of the U.S. counter-narcotics effort and the war on drugs to targeting the top three cartels in Colombia, Medellin, Cali, and I forget the name of the other one, and to cause an inter-intra-cartel war bringing about the self-destruction and mutual annihilation of those cartels. That was scary to think mm -hmm. that you're going to be a principal in the development of something like that. So off we go. And, and you know, what am I going to do? How am I going to do it? And Ed Dames was there with me. Ed Dames was not a deceiver. He was a researcher for the deceivers. And it was the last time we served together, but we were there. I was kind of whiteboarding ideas of things to do because really not my cup of tea and nothing that I'd ever done before, but I had to start making the rounds and talking like to people at Epic and talking to other things, which was just forming Epic and talking to other places. And, and, and know, what's Epic? Out. Epic, it is a conglomeration of all law enforcement and military intelligence collection organizations and it's in El Paso, Texas. Okay. And that that is well known to the cartels and the cartels have superb counter intel and they said right then and there when you walked in there they go you've already been photographed. So they go the the fact you got out of a car in the parking lot to come in here you've been photographed. So it will not be long before they figure out who you are, where you are, you know what you really are, etc. They have that kind of intel. So, all right, thanks for that. Not sure what to do with it, but it was trying to find out from everybody what the focus was, what the difficulty was, where the things they thought they needed help without saying I'm here to build a strategic deception. You're there presenting yourself as somebody entirely different. Like you're a researcher, you're a fact finder, kind of like SOG, right? You're there to be part of this uh, special observation group, kind of thing like that. You're pitching it and, like and, that. And for folks who don't know, SOG is the special operations group that is the paramilitary arm of the CIA. Very active in Vietnam. So you're that. And then you presenting it that way. And then I just collected information and then came back and ended up going to Los Alamos because I was told that. There were some people there that I needed to talk to. And I was not unfamiliar with that because I'd been there as I was doing research for non-lethal weapons when I was building up to actually getting on the chief of staff of the Army's study group for non-lethal weapons, which I was on that after I came out of command general staff college. So when I was there, I meet a botanist, 
which was because people were there to pitch me ideas. Now, why? They knew what I was generally looking for, and they came to pitch ideas. And the reason they came to pitch ideas is because they're looking for funding. You know, if you're a researcher at Los Alamos, you're still looking. It's like a researcher in a university, right? You're still looking for funding. You're still you're getting paid, but you're still looking for funding to keep all your folks employed and to have purpose, et cetera, and just keep your job there at Los Alamos. So this botanist brings me in to speak to some other botanists. And we go through this idea. And I said, look, I know that we are dealing with the coca plant. I said, what could we do starting at the source of this psychoactive ingredient, you know, this stimulant that brings on this euphoria? What can we do there? Where could we start with something there? What can we actually do and what can you tell me that we can't do? And so this was how it was pitched to me. They said, well, you have to look, think of it this way. If you go out into your backyard and look around at all the plants in your backyard, there are pathogens. And when you talk about pathogens, you're talking about infectious diseases like fungi and viroids, you know, various virus-like organisms and protozoa and other parasitic plants and just plain viruses, bacteria, stuff like that. And that will be those pathogens that will be generic to the entire yard. However, if you go to any specific plant and take that plant and look at it closely, as a botanist would, you can find a suite of organisms that are unique only to that plant. Hmm. Okay. I didn't know that. Despite all my biology at university level, I did not know that. And so here we were then going, okay, so then what would we do if we isolated a suite of organisms? And the response was, well, we could bioengineer them to break apart the molecule of the psychoactive ingredient in cocaine, which is this azonide, or basically, that's a dopamine reuptake inhibitor. It's got two HO molecules, and it has one NH2 molecule. And the covalent bonding, the easiest to break was the NH2 molecule, right? Mm -hmm. This azonide and ammonia ion, it was an easy one to break off. So if you did that, if you could figure out a way to break that apart, if you put the cocaine in the test kit, in the Scott's field test kit and shook it up, you know, for looking for the color indicator, that was such a test to begin with. It had so many false positives all the time, the, the likelihood of them detecting that there was something wrong with the psychoactive ingredient was minimal, well worth the risk because it was likely to test positive just because they were their particulate form. It was probably still test positive. We just didn't know yet because we weren't that far down the scheme of planning. So the idea then became, that's it. That's where we'll start. Okay. So we now need to get samples, and those were obtained from various hectares across the region. Cocaine plants were packed up. They were put into these biosphere things. They were carried back to Los Alamos. The pathologists and botanists all got together, and they isolated two or three pathogens unique to the coca plant. Quick question. So yeah. these particular samples that you're getting are on Cali Cartel and Medellin land. 
How did you get the samples without getting killed? I didn't get the samples and I don't know how they got them. I'm assuming it's some guy in sandals ran out, dug up a couple of plants and stuck them in these things and all them, you know, hauled them back and threw them in the back of some guy's truck and brought them back. I don't know. I didn't go that far out there to be part of that, but I know that it, it came down through the embassy and the mill group that we needed to get this kind of support and we needed these back for study. And it didn't get hard from there for us. I mean, it was just, they were brought back. And so it was a lot of standing around for the baby to be birthed. And we were kind of looking at what's going to be there. So they came up with, as I recall, three or four pathogens that were unique to the coca plant. And so the next phase of this was to figure out which one could be bioengineered most successfully, or maybe we wouldn't be able to bioengineer it at all. And that did not disrupt the deception because remember, this does not have to be 100% real. In fact, it's not expected to be real. It's expected to bring about the desired outcome. And nobody has to ever know what's real or what's fake. What's the lie? Because it's a lie, right? So now I've just yeah. let on to everybody here listening, you know, but some of this that I'm going to tell you actually came about and some of it I'm going to tell you we don't know that we would have ever been able to get there with it but I'll tell you the whole story and so, at the end of the day you didn't necessarily have to attack the coca supply to make this work you could have done it another way another way to target these cartels yeah. to spark a war is to use human intelligence and contacts and confidential informants to spread lies and and cause and that, people to want to go after each other or both right so this yeah. is the vector you chose at the very beginning yeah because it was deceptive and it was layers and it was complex and it was scientific it would have taken a very long time for people to unravel it if they had ever even figured out what part of the string to start pulling on Right. So the whole idea put it that you were going to take an isolated suite of organisms and bioengineer it to break apart the psychoactive ingredient in the coca plant, thereby in cocaine, meant that you were going to develop an inert product. If you tested it, it would test positive as cocaine. But if you snorted it or shot it or smoked it, it was going to give you nothing. There was no stimulant. There was no dopamine reuptake inhibitor present. It had been broken apart and rendered inert. That was the premise of what we were working on. So then the next thing becomes, how do I deliver that? But my other idea in this was, this can't be the only prong of this effort. There has to be another piece of that that we have to introduce into this. And that is simply you can take out of, a, a, let's say, a seized shipment of cocaine and you take 40 keys in a seized shipment. And out of that, you take a third. And of a third of those, you chemically wash them and you can chemically wash them. It's kind of like decaffeinating coffee. So you're chemically washing it and you are thereby rendering that cocaine inert. And that would then be repackaged identical to the rest of the keys. 
So you now have a third of the keys which are inert and which would then be put into the rest of the shipment. So the chances are somebody was might test one key or two keys, but the chances that they were going to get find one of those that was inert, probably next to nothing again, uh, certainly a risk within limits. And so that was then reintroduced into the distribution chain through witting sources, and it was then put there. And the idea was to let that move through the distribution chain because we knew once it got into the hands of the users and was mm -hmm. determined to be inert, nobody now knew. They just knew which cartel had supplied that product through the distribution chain. And now all of a sudden, people, street dealers and middlemen and upper middlemen, right, are having to deal with the repercussions, financial and violence that was going to happen, that was going to burn right back up the distribution chain all the way to the top eventually. And it wasn't an industry where people sat down and worked out problems. It was right. an industry where people shot and killed people because of that. I was a little troubled by that because it was one of those things that needed to have somebody in national leadership make a decision briefed by military leadership that this could be a potential outcome for this. Well, and plus everyone spillover effects to, too. Spillover uh, effects me? too, right? Well, plus there's spillover effects too as these people oh. kill each other. There's yeah. you know stray bullets, all sorts of things that mm -hmm. that are associated with it. Yeah, it was definitely an issue and a concern that needed to be addressed. And everyone seemed to be in those early stages, you know, of the war on drugs to be pretty complacent about those kinds of things. Like, okay, well, if, if your function in life is to sell drugs on the streets, you know, in Chicago or Baltimore, and you get killed for doing it, then you get killed for doing it. That it was kind of how they were looking at it, rightly or wrongly. I'm just telling you that's what it was those days. Mm -hmm. So that decision was made and okay. So seized shipments began to be selectively pulled out, chemically washed, and then reintroduced back into to the distribution chain. And going back to the plant pathogen, the idea, see, that began an inter-cartel war. The way to build the intra-cartel war laterally was to make each cartel believed that the other cartel was responsible for the sabotage. And so the way that was working was, I thought, you know, we need to introduce this pathogen, real or perceived, into the various cartels. And we need to make the other cartel believe that the other cartel was responsible for that. And then that would explain why things were happening on the street coming back up the distribution chain. So that began not only the inter-cartel war to deal with that, but now the intra because they were going to blame each other. And that was the mission to allow them, the three of them, to destroy themselves internally and laterally through the deception. That was the intent. And it was also a self-reinforcing aspect of the lie, the deception. Absolutely. Right? It explained. That was the pathogen. Right. Yeah. Because the pathogen was pitched as a self-inoculating pathogen, meaning it would live in the root ball of the exposed plants. And when it lived in the root ball of the exposed plants, every time the plants were harvested, right, plant regrows again for its life cycle, 
and the pathogen re-inoculates that plant and it's attacked again and again and again. And so how are you going to introduce that into the hectares of this particular region? And the idea was microencapsulation. So in microencapsulation, you know, you've got the core reactive agent, which was the pathogen. And so it doesn't go into an anorexic state. These polymers are used to wrap it, to encapsulate it. And the polymers can have microns of breathability in them, openings, in other words, so it could be, it has an ability to exist in the encapsulation without being affected. And then the microencapsulation is really fascinating stuff. And I discovered what it was and how it could be used when I was doing you know, the research on the non-lethal technologies because they were spraying these polymers and these adhesives and they were microencapsulating them so they could spray them. And then when they would hit the metal of a tank or an artillery piece, the encapsulation would break apart in the polymer. This polymer adhesive would spread like a quarter inch thick and harden immediately, like within seconds, 10, 15 seconds, it's now hardened and it's so hard, it's like a weld. So the only way to get it off is to grind it off or to chisel it off. And hearing about that, and then, you know, we were talking about how, how long would it take them to chisel free an artillery piece so that it could traverse again, elevation, deflection, that kind of stuff. And they said, well, we can slow it down. These are the non-lethal guys. And changing gears, they're just telling you a non-lethal story about microencapsulation. And they're like, well, you know, we can put... Uh, cadaverine, fecaline, and a whole bunch of other stuff. I'm like, cadaverine? And they go, yeah, it smells like dead, rotting bodies. And we microencapsulate this stuff, and we would mix it in with the other stuff. So when it goes down and it gets into the polymer, when the polymer's on there and they're trying to chisel this crap off, it releases cadaverine. So they'll have to mask up because it's so pungent that you can't just sit there and go, and you're not going to put a scarf on and do it. You're going to put a protective mask on or you won't be able to stand it. You know, it's like eyes watering, nose dripping, that kind of stuff. So I'm like, cool. Why don't we microencapsulate this pathogen? And these microencapsulations can be designed specifically to be triggered to release, to break open and release the pathogen based on temperature variants. They can do it based on moisture variants. They can use it on time variants. They can do all different kinds of things. They can even design it so that when it touches the external chemical makeup of the coca plant, then it breaks open kind of thing. So the idea was they would just do it based on time and they would put this stuff in tanks and they were going to aircraft aerosol apply it because it was heavier than air. It would just descend down, coat the plant coat the ground around the plant, and at a given time, break open pathogens, go to the plant, do their, what they're supposed to be doing there. Mm-hmm. So now, in order to, to continue that deception, it, we knew specifically what the plant, the aircraft were from rotary wing aircraft to fixed wing aircraft, high wing, low wing aircraft, everything that the cartels used. We knew everything that each of the cartels used. But they swapped them around a lot and bought new ones a lot, but it didn't matter because we could be as fast as they were and replicating what they were getting. So we replicated make models of aircraft and we replicated paint schemes and tail numbers. And then we outfitted these aircraft with spray rigs and big external tanks. And then would put this microencapsulated pathogen that may or may not have done what I've said it could do, 
and we were then spraying these fields, okay? They spraying the hectares, had specific pilots that did that very thing. And then they had informants and CIs that would be confidential informants that they would start to pass the traffic that I was asking to be passed, which was, hey, you know, these guys just sprayed your field and that's why you're having all this trouble in Boston, right? And then in strategic management of time and assets, and when you're going to introduce the next piece of the deception, the other cartel would find out that this cartel had done it. Well, the other cartel was going, wait a minute, I never did what they said that I did, but they're, they blamed me. And now I know that they're doing it. So they're, you know, you see what I mean? So now there's a great deal of friction. And where they all started off as partners in this big crime, now they hate each other and they start to kill each other off from middle management working its way up to the point that Pablo Escobar eventually kills one of his former partners with a chainsaw because of, in part, this, amongst other things. In fact, his discussion was, you owe me money because you've been affecting my distribution and my product, and so therefore you owe me money, and if you're not going to pay me that money, which the other guy refused to do because he didn't feel that he had done anything and probably didn't, he was killed because of that. So it went back and forth. And then they began to inform on each other that work deals, kill each other off, you know, and it was intra and inter cartel war. And so it became very effective. And somewhere along the line, this lasted about six months from start to finish. And the efficacy was notable. It was immediately measurable. And, and immediately, and more importantly, immediately noticed. And immediately noticed. And noticed by, you would think I would say the wrong people, and by saying the wrong people mean the cartels. The cartels were dealing with it, but the cartels didn't figure it out. But the people that had actually put it into play were the people that then eventually turned around and said, this stops. And it was immediately shut down. It was shut down without explanation. It was just closed off, no more. It was not going to happen again. When I came back in the country and sat down with the executive officer, you know, he just looks at me and he goes, you know, Morris, you're very naive. He goes, I want you to understand. I would never told you before. He goes, but I was against this from the beginning and I was against it because I know that if it was effective, if it was effective, that it was not going to last because too many people are in support of the war on drugs. There's too much money. There's too much for everybody to gain. And you're going to put a lot of people out of work. If you cause the collapse of this, and I'm not saying that my deception would have, because eventually they probably would have found parts of the pieces of it out. They would have discovered something and I would have to change it up on them and do the next piece of it. Right. But it had an effect. The effect was noted and it was immediately shut down. And that to me was really disconcerting when it was explained to me that it was shut down by the same people who originally sponsored and ignited this fuse on this war on drugs. Because now it meant that people like the agency, you want to look at the movie you know, about Barry Seals, the one that Tom Cruise stars in, it, hey, that actually happened. That was just not made up stuff. That actually happened. Governor Clinton knew about it and knew what was going on. That's how he gets Barry Seals bailed out. 
There was so much money changing hands on so many levels, so many campaign finance contributions that were made through this kind of dirty money. You saw what happened with Freeway Ricky Ross and all those guys and Gary Webb, you know, from San Jose uh, Mercury News, right? Telling the story about what that was. That's another Kill the Messenger, another good movie talking all about this time and our national history about what we were doing and how this stuff was getting plagiarized and manipulated and really good men like DEA agents like Kiki that were killed and tortured. And then you absolutely know that there are people within you know the intel community, probably the agency that can help orchestrate that. Because why? Because this was a cash cow for a very, yeah, very- weapons. Yeah. yeah, help buy weapons for the Contras. <clears throat> yeah. And it was a sad thing to see and a sad thing to know. And, and yeah, I was naive. I had no idea that that's what would happen. I thought this submission would be successful and it would be sustainable because it was such a scientifically applied process. Uh, here's what I did know. They were going to be successful. And I think that the they were in the last days or weeks of this, as I recall, that I was told that they were just like days away from actually by completing the bioengineering of a particular pathogen to do exactly this. And had they done that and we start putting that out there, then we just would have destroyed the, the coca crop across Central and South America. I mean, we just would have destroyed it. And because we could have put that pathogen in there and I guess if the Peruvians who had been chewing coca leaves for 10,000 years in ceremonies would have to chew inert leaves, but stimulant wouldn't be there. That's what happened. And that was a strategic deception, a lie sustainable for a minimum of 10 years. And that's how clever and it's how complex these deceptions can be. And there were other deceptions that I found out about that dealt with things like oral anthrax antidotes and other stuff where they were just lies. And there are lies that are very complex. And the number of people, I mean, it, these were, you go to a pharmaceutical company, you get a pharmaceutical company, it has a classified organization that's part of it there. You walk in, you say, here's what I want. And I need you to build me pharmacology that might, looks like it might do this, even if it doesn't. But we need to have testing and we need to have literature and studies and research reports and other things that say that, in, in fact, this pharmacology does do this. It does orally as an antidote to an anthrax in, in infection and build that and then make a fake product, give it lot numbers, give it expiration dates, give it instructions for use documents, give it contraindications and side effects and make all of that in literature known, spread it around carefully as the deceiver directs it to be done and manufacture it, the pharmacology Laboratory gets paid to make it. They make billions of dollars worth of it. And it gets pushed out into the front lines and put into Connex boxes and stored there. When the, in those days in the Cold War, when the Soviets come across the hold the gap, you can break out the oral antidote in case they throw anthrax at you. And nobody had any idea that it was actually aspirin, but that's exactly what it was, aspirin. Was carefully controlled. If they were rotating stocks out and putting new stocks in, the old stocks were destroyed immediately. So people didn't get their hands on it like the Soviets and then break it apart and chemically test it and go, it's nothing but aspirin, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. 
And so that lie was there for a very, very long time. Better part of my career, that lie was in existence. So the guy that had that one, that was a good one, but it just doesn't end. Now, those are the only two I can share with you because it was so compartmentalized in this organization that those are the only two I ever found out about. You were, when you got there, you were told very specifically that no one here will ever tell you what they're doing, what they're working on. And you are forbidden to tell anybody else what you're working on. Your support staff will know, like Ed or somebody like that. They'll know based on whatever you tell them, but nobody else will know. And even when you brief leadership, you will brief them in such a way that you'll give them what they need to know without giving them everything. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's how that world works. There's nobody, not from the CIA on down, and there's nobody within organizations such as this. There's no leadership that wants to know everything because if they know everything, they have no plausible deniability, even as military leaders, but they also then are a risk to the entire organization if they know everything. Because if somebody knew who, where we were and knew exactly who we were and knew what was there and they knew the guy that was in, in charge of that organization in those days, if somebody wanted to literally scoop him up off the street and take him away and torture him until he told them all the operations and what was going on in the operations, that probably would have happened. And for that reason, even the enemy working in compartmentalization knows that nobody knows all the truth. And so therefore, it's pointless to try to grab some guy and pull him in and you know rip his fingernails out or whatever to try to figure out what the organization is doing completely from front to back and top to bottom. It just, you'll never know. So it's a waste of effort. And then it lets them know that you now know where they are and what they're doing, and which means they're just going to up shape shift into something else and land some other place and you'll be back at a loss again. But that was a really strange place to live and work. I'll tell you, that was the only time where I went in and sat down in meetings inside Faraday cages, felt like Maxwell smart into the cone of silence. You're going to sit down in a Faraday cage and that's where you're having meetings and briefings in Faraday cages <laughs> all over the inside this building. And yeah, it was a weird, weird time. As soon as my operation was shut down, mm -hmm. they really didn't have a purpose for me there. So I kind of started the slow roll of leaving the place, at, spent four months at Infantry Branch and then off to Commander Girl Staff College. But yeah, that was it. That was Torn Image. And uh, that's the first time that story has been told. And I told you everything that I can tell you truthfully. And then there are parts of it that we never did, to my knowledge, ever isolate a suite of organisms that we could actually bioengineer. I was told that we were right there with it, but then all the funding and everything was, was stopped. So I'm sure that maybe. they probably stopped it. Yeah, never did it for as far as I know. So maybe, maybe, maybe. yeah. I'm right, sure if they couldn't find it, an application for it in the cocaine world, they would have found an application for it somewhere else, right? Mm -hmm. It was a lot of work done. It was good work. These are smart people. So that was my Well, they life. need funding too, right? They still need yeah, funding. They <laughs> and they did the research. So I guarantee that didn't go away. Yeah. You know, it may have been used for something else, but I guarantee it didn't go away. Mm -hmm. it, which this all this whole thing raises all sorts of interesting questions. So mm -hmm. 
<laughs> when are you going to start offering classes again for remote viewing? I think we'll start teaching classes again probably within the next three months. That's what I oh. think. Uh, okay. Yeah. And I'm already talking to some folks about putting a whole new learning management system online. We're talking about doing live classes via Zoom. I talked with you about that. We're talking about doing the thought incubation as one of the primary classes as well. We're talking about doing an accelerated program for certain groups of people that have done a whole lot of prep work and reading and getting ready to do stuff. And that's one of the groups that I work with down in uh, Miami. They spent probably two years with their mentor and their mentor was one of my students and they were there with their mentor who works in neurolinguistic programming, but it's called Upgrade and it's online. You can see it. Really smart guy, done some really amazing work, amazing stuff. And he has a really smart, collected group of people that are a lot of fun to be around. And because they've done so much prep work, we're going to go in and do an accelerator program for them, which will be a really powerful three-day program. Might be two days, I'll have to see. When I get off here, we're going to have a call later this afternoon and talk about that in detail. But if you go to Upgrade online, you'll be able to see that and you'll be able to see that organization. Maybe they have something that a lot of your folks are interested in. And I'm not trying to pump them. I'm just telling you that it's a great organization. And I really like their mentor, William. He's a good guy. All right, my friend. I will look forward to seeing those offerings and then talking to you soon. All right, brother. Take care. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.